There is something about a story that is absolutely wonderful for teaching. Stories teach. I remember growing up watching cartoons, and there were some really good lessons in cartoons. They're pretty deeply embedded sometimes in there. But the cartoons I remember, there were some, some good lessons and you know, some not-so-good lessons too. But stories have a power to teach. We believe here in the inspiration of Scripture, in the sufficiency of Scripture, and in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. What that means is everything in here is inspired, given to us by God. It has direct application to our lives, and we can learn from it. Now, you may go and pick like 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and, and challenge me and say, now tell me how this applies to my life. We can talk about that at some point. But everything in here applies to us, teaches us, has something that we can learn from. Let's go to our scripture memory verse of the month. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and our scripture memory verse of the month is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Would you read this with me? 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. These things occurred as examples. These things that Paul is talking about are some of the stories from the Old Testament, and we're going to dig into that today. The book of 1 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth by the Apostle Paul, remember, deals with factionalism. People who believe that they have, in some sense or another, arrived in their group of individuals, in their close circle, in their faction. They think, you know, we've, we've arrived spiritually, and these other guys, they, you know, they belong to the not-arrived group yet, but we hear we've arrived. And Paul writes to this group in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and really the overall message of 1 Corinthians is knock it off. Pretty simple. Um, but Paul goes into lots of detail and explains what it exactly is that they need to knock it off. And we can learn from this, not because we have factions, not because we are falling into the same trap, but because it gives us insight into areas where we could slip so that we can perform preventative maintenance in order to endure. So we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul spoke about self-discipline. And so he follows up this message of self-discipline, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So 
If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The Apostle Paul, writing to this group that he has just told them to be disciplined, exercise self-discipline, follows it up with some incredible examples. And the first thing that he really points out is he says that despite their identity, the Israelites failed to consistently obey God. Despite their identity, they were the people of God. They were following Moses. They had God's very presence. God had called them out. Despite their identity, the Israelites failed to consistently obey God. God. Paul breaks it down for us in a a very nice way. Uh, The first thing that he really hits at is that even though the Israelites had seen, known, and identified with God, they still sinned. See, there's a, a principle here. Even after seeing, knowing, and identifying with God, fallen people still fail. I want you to think about the Israelites who left Egypt. The Israelites who left Egypt in the Exodus had three significant advantages, three huge advantages. First of all, they had seen God's power. They had visible reminders of the power of God. Think about that for just a second. They had seen the plagues. They had witnessed God parting the Red Sea. They had seen God's power time and time again in victory. The Israelites who left Egypt saw God's power on display. But more than that, they had a visible reminder that they were following no one else other than the God of the universe. During the day, a pillar of clouds led the people out of the wilderness. Now, if we're in Nebraska and we see a pillar of clouds, that's not a good thing, okay? But the Israelites had a visible reminder at day, a pillar of clouds. At night, even more, a pillar of fire. There was any question in their mind, where are we going? They just had to follow that pillar. Visible reminder of God's presence. So they saw God's power. They had the visible reminder of God's presence. They even had probably arguably the greatest leader that nation ever knew leading them at that time. They had Moses, a man who had seen God's presence, who had been face to face with God, who glowed when he left the presence of God because God's holiness was so great. The greatest leader of all time. This leader led them through the Red Sea. Spoke to them the very commandments of God. Yet, what we're going to see is despite all these advantages, the Israelites still failed to follow God. Despite all the advantages in the world, they still failed to follow God. 
You see, even if God provides for all of a person's physical needs, a fallen person's still going to fail. Sometimes I interact with a Christian and they come to me and they'll tell me about slipping into some sin. They'll say, I cannot believe I fell into that sin. How could this have happened to me? The answer is really simple. Fallen people still fail. We have our sins forgiven, but we still have our sin nature and fallen people will still fail. There's an interesting story in here uh, as it talks about in uh, verse four, it says, and they drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So that one verse is very, very confusing, okay? I want to take you back. God provided for their physical needs. He provided manna from heaven. Manna literally means, what is it? That's the translation of the word manna because there's food. What is it? I don't know. Came from heaven. I've always wondered what it actually would have tasted like. I don't know. They needed water because, you know, you can't just eat food. And they're out in the wilderness. So let me remind you the story. There's a rock and God tells Moses, smack the rock with your stick. Moses does it, and water begins flowing out of the rock. A little bit later, they need water again. God says to Moses, talk to the rock. Moses opts to smack the rock again, but the rock provided water for them. So, advance now, 1,500 years later. Jewish tradition, the rabbis came up with this story. You know, the rock was there at the beginning, the rock was there later. So they came up with this story that the rock must have followed Israel all throughout the desert. Okay? So Paul actually takes that story, that sort of mythological story, and transforms it into a truism. What he says is, yeah, the rock did follow you, but it wasn't the physical rock. It was the very abiding presence of Jesus that was with you. Paul is telling the Israelites, you had every advantage. You had God's presence with you. He provided you manna from heaven. He provided you water. He provided you his physical presence in the cloud. He provided you every advantage. But yet, fallen people still fail. There's a lesson for us here. Those who identify with Christ must strive to obey God. Not as a means of salvation, but rather as an act of humble dependence on God. See, the Israelites, their biggest problem, they had every advantage, their biggest problem was that they simply thought that because they identified as Israelites, because of their name, because of their heritage, that they had this thing called sin linked. That they had this thing called a relationship with God taken care of. They simply thought that by being an Israelite, that was sufficient and everything else would be easy. We here in the church today have every advantage. Think about it. The Israelites were all under the cloud. 
They could see the visible presence of God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, that is, you have taken that he died on the cross and paid for your sins and you are depending solely on Christ's death for your sins, then you have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within your heart. More important, more significant, better than a cloud, you've got the Spirit living within you. Huge advantage. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. Okay, here's another picture. If you have been baptized, that is, you have given a visible identification with your Savior. That's what baptism is, is a visible identification with the Savior for all to see. You have an advantage. You have proclaimed your dependence on Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. We're going to talk a little bit about the new covenant in a moment. But the idea here is they received the blessings of God, the Israelites did. We as a church, as individuals, receive God's blessings day in and day out. We have all the advantages we could ever want. Yet, if all we do is rely on our identity, I'm a Christian, we're going to slip into sin. We must rely not on our identity, but the one with whom we identify. That's the key. Don't just rely on your title as a Christian. Rely on your Savior, the one with whom you identify. Paul was concerned for the Corinthian church. They had these factions going on. They were lacking self-discipline. And Paul's concern is that these Christians are going to fall into the same pattern that the Israelites leaving Egypt fell into, where they begin to think that their identification is sufficient for their obedience. We don't have to worry about this obedience thing. See, we're God's people. And Paul says, no, don't fall for it. You still have to strive to be like Christ. So this leads me to an action step. Consider your own past. Have you made the mistake of depending on your identity for victory instead of depending on the one with whom you identify? Have you ever fallen into the trap of saying, I'm a Christian, I'm good, instead of, I want to be like Christ and I will strive for Christ-likeness? It's a minor difference. It's so minor. It's so nuanced. We don't identify simply and be good. No, we have to strive to be like Christ. We have to ask Christ to help us to be more like him. Small, minor nuance. But the Apostle Paul was so worried that the Corinthians were falling into this. He follows this up in verses 6 through 10 with four historical examples. Four stories or narratives, if you will, that happened to Israel that demonstrate how easy it is to fall into sin. Four historical examples will highlight how easy it is to fall into sin, how careful we must be. Verse 6 is a hugely important theological verse. It tells us that 
much of what's written in the Bible is written as an example for us to learn from. We are to study scripture, to learn the patterns that we may fall into, to learn how to apply it to our lives. It says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The setting our hearts on evil things, that's actually uh, the idea that that carries is lusting after sin. Lusting after sin. Now, lust has a whole lot of baggage with it, is a word, and it, it rightly deserves that baggage. But if you set aside the baggage for just a minute and think about your own temptations, whatever they be, how often when you fall into sin or you succumb to temptation, is it because you actually lusted after sin? You spent time thinking about how great it would be to just gossip or how great it would be to just fall into this area of sin and just let it go. That's the picture that Paul's trying to paint here. Is it all too often what happens is we set our hearts on something that we shouldn't want. We set our hearts on sin. I was thinking last night, we have a cat that's very picky with his water. He will not drink water out of a dish. Um, if we have the dish flowing, sometimes he'll drink out of it. You see, when he was a kitten, we lived in a really old house when we first got married, and every pipe in that house leaked. I mean, it was old. And so we didn't have to set water out because he would just find, like, a drip and, and drink from it. And without us knowing, what we essentially taught him was that the only good water is water coming out of the pipe. So now as he's gotten older and he rejects most forms of water, he spends most of his life wanting water. And if I'm taking a shower, 90% of the time, I can look to my side and the cat's there looking at the shower. He's not allowed to drink out of the shower because he drinks soap and then he gets sick. But I can see in his eyes, he's lusting after that shower water. (laughs) And I often call him out on it. And then he sinks his head and walks away. (laughs) But that's the picture of how we fall into sin. We see it. We desire it. We continue to dwell on it. And eventually we find that, I can't believe I just did that. Well, I can because I saw it and I desired it and I, I just let it fester. Don't set your mind on sin. For example, highlight how easy it is to fall into it. The first one, despite the presence of the God of the universe, idolatry was a real temptation for the Israelites. Remember, they have the pillar of fire. They have the cloud. And yet they fell into idolatry. In fact, Moses, at the base of Mount Sinai, goes up to speak with Yahweh, the God of the universe. The mountain is rumbling, trembling as Moses is up there. Clouds and lightning are on display. Why? Because they set their hearts on sin. In the very presence of God, they fell into idolatry, which is the Mount Sinai incident. It says the people sat down to eat and drink, 
and got up to indulge in revelry. They set their minds on that which they should not have and fell into idolatry. The second example Paul gives us is that of sexual immorality. And the lesson that Paul has for us is that sexual immorality is an incredibly strong temptation but wields devastating consequences. Sexual immorality is an incredibly strong temptation. The Israelites fell into it and it had devastating consequences. Paul's reference is probably a reference to Numbers 25 where the Moabites want to get after Israel. They want to stop Israel. They want to slow Israel down. And they tried to curse Israel. That doesn't go so well. And so they come up with a new strategy. We'll send our women in. We'll have them tempt the Israelites. The Israelites will fail and God will judge them. And guess what happens? They sent their women in. The women tempted the Israelites. God judged them significantly. Paul's point here is that even though these individuals identified with God, they still failed. We must not set our hearts on sin. The third thing Paul brings up is that covetously despising God's provision leads one to have contempt for God himself. When we covetously despise God's provision, what does that look like for Israel? It looked like the manna. This beautiful food that God had provided got old after 40 years of eating it, day in and day out. Now, one of the differences between Emily and I is I actually can eat the same food over and over and over. I, I could eat pizza every day. I really could. Uh, Emily, after two days of any food, is ready for a change. Emily likes food a lot. I like food, but I'm content with pizza. Chris, thanks for pizza today for the deacons meeting. The Israelites, 40 years of eating manna, they got tired of it. I want to read to you Numbers 21, 4 through 6, so that you can sort of get a picture of this. Numbers 21, 4 through 6 says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They despised God's provision, and it led them to actually show contempt for the God of the universe. But take a second. This isn't just something that the Israelites can do. This is something that, in fact, we do. Have you ever despised, covetously despised what God has given you? You Maybe your house isn't as nice as your boss's house. Maybe your car isn't as nice as your boss's car. Have you ever covetously despised the gifts that God has given you? Be careful. It will lead you to hold contempt for God. Paul describes it as, in fact, testing Christ. 
We should not test Christ. That is the sin of not trusting that what Christ has given you is sufficient. Not trusting his promises. Not trusting that he's enough. The fourth thing that Paul highlights is that grumbling against God's plans and methods provokes God's anger. Something that we see consistently that the Israelites did in the Old Testament, especially in the wandering, is they consistently grumble against God. Murmur and complain. In fact, the Hebrew word for grumble shows up three set in three separate incidents across the story there. Exodus 16, 7, Numbers 14, uh, 27, and Numbers 17, 5, where the Israelites explicitly grumble against God. But if you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice there's an underlying tone of grumbling against God throughout 1 Corinthians. The people grumble, can't we eat what we want? Food sacrifice to idols. Can't we have sexual relations with whoever we want? Can't we hang out with whoever we want? Can't we get back into our factions and our hierarchy the way we want? And Paul is definitively saying, no. You don't get to grumble against God's plan. You don't get to desire to return back to your pre-salvation life. So four examples of sins that we can fall into. My action step. Take a second and ask yourself, where am I most often tempted to fall into sin? I actually propose that if you think about your own temptations in your life, these four categories probably cover everybody here. Okay? These four categories, I think, probably cover everybody here. Idolatry, today is a real temptation. It might not look like a golden calf. Maybe it's the Lombardi trophy instead. But idolatry is a real temptation today. Sexual immorality, I don't even need to address. You know that's a temptation. Covetously despising God's provision, real temptation today. And grumbling against God's plans and methods. My guess is every single one of us falls into one of those four categories. But here's the beauty of it all. Paul concludes this section with, I think, the greatest message other than forgiveness of sins in the Bible. That message is, we don't have to fall into sin. We can escape. That's the way Paul concludes this. We start off with this devastating story of sin, and we look at Israel, and we see all of their failures. And then we apply it to our own lives, and we look and we see all of the ways that we are tempted and the ways that we fall into sin. And Paul concludes with, but you don't have to fall into sin. You can escape sin. How? Verse 11. First of all, by learning from the past. We can learn from the past. Verse 11 says, these things happened as examples to them, as examples and were written down as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. The culmination of the ages is the 
crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We live in a post-crucifixion era. Christ has won the victory over sin. He has given us forgiveness, but more than forgiveness, he has won victory over sin. Everything before pointed forward to Christ, and now we get to look in the rearview mirror and see the culmination of the ages. We must realize that none of us has this problem called sin licked. That's verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. None of us has it licked, but God does provide an escape. There's a certain arrogance that permeated the people of Corinth. They thought they had arrived. They believed that their knowledge of God gave them the right to do whatever they wanted. That permeates the book of 1 Corinthians. They believed their knowledge of God gave them the right to do anything that they wanted. And Paul says, so if you think that you're standing firm, take heed, be careful. There's some irony in this. The people of Corinth were arrogantly standing before the God of the universe in their knowledge, saying, I can do what I want because I know grace because I know I've been forgiven. I know God will forgive any of my sins, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And in their standing before the God of the universe, declaring this, they were causing everybody around them to stumble, to fall into sin. And Paul says, be careful, those of you who think that you're standing firm, lest you fall. Is standing before God wrong? The answer is no. Actually, the Bible commands us Stand firm in your faith. We are given the privilege of standing before the God of the universe, but not on our own strength, rather on the strength of Christ. Romans 11.20. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Romans 14.4, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master? Servants stand or fall and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. What Paul is saying, don't stand on your own power before God. Don't stand on your own knowledge before God. Stand in faith in Jesus. And that gets us to really verse 13. The problem is not standing. The problem is standing in anything less than faith. Because we serve a God who is bigger than our sin. And that's the whole culmination of the passage. Paul says, No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Paul brings his logic all together in verse 13. 
Remember the problem in verse 6. We lust after sin. We set our hearts on things that are not allowed. We set our minds on things that are sinful. And we pursue it until sin reaches fruition and then we regret it. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, if you feel tempted, if you are tempted to sin today, trust me, there's somebody else in the room who's also tempted by that same thing in that same way. No temptation has overtaken you other than what is common to man. We're all struggling with sin. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Here's the picture. I'm taking the shower. The cat is looking at the water, wishing he could drink it. I look down, I see the cat. Our cat's name is Einstein. I yell, Einstein, what are you doing? He scuttles off. Emily usually hears me and goes and gets him some fresh water. But I am convinced this is the picture of sin. We're encountering temptation. We're struggling with it. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And the Holy Spirit goes, stop, stop. We go to him in prayer. And sure enough, God provides the way of escape. What happens all too often when we fall into sin is when the Holy Spirit is poking us and saying, stop, slow down, stop, slow down. We say, no. And then we fall into sin. See, salvation is forgiveness of sins. The crucifixion brings forgiveness of sins, but the crucifixion also brings victory over sin. And that is the second, I think it's second, most beautiful part of salvation. The first is forgiveness of sins because I don't want to go to hell. But the second aspect of salvation is I also can live for Christ. And that's the new covenant. When Jesus instituted the new covenant, he referenced back to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, he talks about the law is no longer has to be written and coded for us in the legal speak of the book of Deuteronomy, which everybody, it's their favorite book, right? <laughs> no, it's written on our heart because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Jesus instituted the new covenant, the Passover night before he died. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. And he instituted forgiveness of sins and victory over sin. Today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so my action step today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to take some time to reflect over the victory that has been won over sin. Reflect on that victory. Yes, we have forgiveness and we should celebrate that, but more than just forgiveness, we have the opportunity for victory over sin. 
I'd like to invite our deacons to come forward as we celebrate, partake of the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what the Apostle Paul wrote is a reminder that we celebrate the Lord's Supper not as some act of magic whereby we're forgiven of our sins. We're already forgiven of sins. But whereby we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. He tells us to do it with a right heart. Part of that is confessing sin. Part of that is remembering and honoring the sacrifice Jesus made. I want to give you all a minute or two to pray, to confess sin, to ask God for victory in areas where maybe you are tempted. So as Nancy plays, I want us just to take some time to pray.